Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to start with prayer, and then we'll jump in. Jesus, I just I thank you for, for your goodness. I thank you, Lord, that we um, have the privilege of being here to, to worship you, to be in this place together as one body, to lift our voices to you, uh, to open our ears to you, to see the work that you are doing throughout the world. Lord, I pray today um, that as we, as we prepare our minds and our hearts to hear Lord, I pray that you would, um, you would just put me behind your cross. And Spirit, I pray that the words that you would have me speak would be your words and not my own. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as David said, I mean, most of you are used to seeing me um, on that side of the stage uh, with a guitar in my hand, so I don't know what to do with my hands today. Um, so hopefully I don't do anything awkward. Um, I appreciate you guys being um, being supportive and, and being such a great church. It's been such a great place for my wife and I to to be uh, this last year now. Um, but my name is Jared Grice. I'm the the director of music here at Resurrection. And um, this morning we're going to be looking at this abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke. Um, you know, I'm somewhat new to Anglicanism. I grew up. Um, Southern Baptist, and so this idea of seasons and specifically ordinary time is kind of a new thing to me. But I'll tell you, one of the the biggest blessings has been understanding that there is a robust pursuit of Christ even in the mundane, everyday, ordinary aspects of life. Following Christ in the ordinary is oftentimes the hardest time to follow Jesus. It's really easy for us to see God on the mountaintops or to cry out to God when we're in the valley, but what about when life is radically normal and we're on the plain and we're still having to pursue Jesus and be pursued by Jesus? That's a radically different kind of challenge. And today's gospel actually speaks specifically to that challenge and what it looks like to follow Christ, to be faithful in the everyday. Today, we're going to look at the radically ordinary, yet also extraordinary discipline of prayer. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I had these really weird habits, and maybe you, you had some like this too. Um, I, would be, I would be out in the driveway playing basketball, shooting, shooting hoops, you know, and I, and I would sit there and I would dribble and I would say, this is my concept of prayer. I would say, God, if I make this shot, that girl is going to be my girlfriend at school. And I would, I'd position myself, I'd get ready, and I'd miss. And I'd go, okay, God, that didn't count. I'd take it back. That was a practice shot. Okay, God, if I make this shot, you know, and I would, I would do that. And then, of course, I would make the shot, and nothing would happen. Um, or I'd be swimming in the pool with my friends, and I would go, okay, God, if I can hold my breath for at least 25 seconds, then I'll be a multimillionaire when I grow up. And I'd hold my breath, and it'd be at least 20 seconds, and I'd wake up, and I'd be so excited. Well, it hasn't happened yet, so I don't know if God just hasn't answered that one or not. But... As, as kids, we sort of have this strange concept of, of prayer. Um, but if we're honest with ourselves, this transactional idea of prayer, where it's ask for something that we want and God gives it in return, a lot of us still sort of pray that way as adults. Many of us, um, we, we come to God as though he is some sort of vending machine. And, and this isn't a new concept. I know many of us have have heard this before and we understand what this is like, but if you can imagine being a kid, going to a vending machine, putting your money in, or maybe you can imagine this experience as an adult, and you make a selection and the wrong thing comes out. It's frustrating. 
right? It's a frustrating experience to feel like we are asking God for something. We are praying to God, we're seeking God, and we're disappointed with what we feel like is not the answer that we want. In my life, what this looks like is I might pray for patience and God gives me a traffic jam. You know, I think a lot of times when we come to God, we come to God with things that we want, when we want them, and in the way that we want them. And we are familiar, all of us, with this experience of feeling disappointed. This tendency in prayer is is nothing new. All of us want intimacy with God, right? If we're believers, we all want a close, intimate prayer life with the Lord. We want to know what it's like to to pray like groaning where we have this deep awareness of who God is and we feel as though God's ear is bent to us. But the reality is, I think a lot of us treat prayer a lot like a junk drawer. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you have a junk drawer in your house? I definitely do. Um, And if you think of a junk drawer, a junk drawer is essentially just a drawer that you shove random things into that you need at various points in your life. And you come to that drawer whenever you're panicking and you're desperately looking for that one thing. Maybe it's an old letter from a friend or maybe it's a tiny screwdriver that you never use or a pair of earrings that you lost a long time ago. And often, I think when we come to God in prayer, this is a lot like what our prayer life looks like. Something unexpected happens. We lose a job. A kid gets in trouble at school and we don't know what to do. Someone seriously hurts us unexpectedly. And so we run to those junk drawer prayers and we beg God for relief or for help or for wisdom. And now please hear me when I say this. There is nothing wrong with praying to God when we are struggling with the unexpected or the unforeseen. In fact, the point that I want to make today is that these are precisely the kinds of prayers God wants us to be comfortable bringing to him. But what God doesn't want is he doesn't want us to treat our prayer life with him as though it's just reaching in the junk drawer or when our phone gets to 10%, we run upstairs and plug it in. Corey Tenboom says it this way. She says, too often prayer is more like a spare tire than a steering wheel. And I think for us Christians, what Jesus is teaching us today is that rather than running to the junk drawer, Christ is teaching the disciples and teaching us about a very different kind of prayer. Prayer that is a lot more like breathing in and breathing out than reaching into the junk drawer. And so what I'd like to do is is read the scripture again, kind of dig into some of the things that stood out to me. And there's really two basic points that I have today. The first one is that Jesus teaches us about the position of prayer. And the second, and this may be surprising, he teaches us about the powerlessness that we have when we pray. So in Luke chapter 11, verse one, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now I wanna stop there because One of the first things that stands out to me in this passage is how this conversation between Jesus and the disciples starts. It says that when Jesus was praying and when he had finished, one of the disciples asked him about teaching them how to pray. 
The disciples are paying attention to Jesus. Not only are they paying attention to him, they're learning from him and they're watching him. They feel a sense of safety to approach their master and ask him to teach them about prayer. When we approach the Lord in prayer, we need to remember that we are not approaching the Lord as strangers or as enemies or as foreigners, but we are learners and we are listeners approaching Jesus. And Jesus also, one of the things that stands out to me is that he doesn't scold this disciple for coming to him and asking him about prayer. I like to imagine that what's happening in this scene is that Jesus is is off separated a little bit from the disciples. Maybe he's near a tree or he's kind of around a rock or something and he's praying. And for the disciples to know what was happening, as I said, they had to have been paying attention. So in my mind, I see this picture of Jesus praying and the disciples kind of lurking around the corner, like peeking and watching him, trying to listen. What's he, what's he saying? Maybe writing it down, trying to remember for themselves. And then because he's Jesus, of course he knows they're around the corner and he, he kind of sees him around the corner and goes, okay, well, I guess I'm done now. In my name, amen. And so the disciples, they're watching him, right? But what Jesus does is he doesn't get up and go, what do you guys want? No, he doesn't have a sense of frustration with them, but he, he welcomes them in safety as they come and they ask him how to pray. There's a childlikeness in the way that the disciples approach Jesus. And as he teaches them, as we continue to read in the scripture, as he teaches them, he shows them first who they are before God. What's the first title that Jesus teaches them about God? It's that he's a father. Well, for him to be a father, it means that we must be his children. So Jesus is teaching the disciples that they are children of God the Father. They have a sense of safety, like a child coming to a parent asking for help. He doesn't turn them away or make them jump through hoops, but he welcomes them to come in the safety of him being their father. But at the same time, as we read, here's what it says. It says, Father, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed has the sense of being honored or glorified or set apart. What Jesus is saying is that yes, God is your father, but he is also your king. We are safe to approach God as his children, but we are also approaching a throne room. We are approaching the throne of God. And I think it's, it's in this tension that Jesus is inviting the disciples into when he answers this question. This tension of embracing God as father and as king. And so if I can, I just want to ask, for you personally, where do you see yourself on this spectrum? Maybe you don't struggle with seeing God as a king, but maybe you struggle with seeing God as your father. Maybe you, you feel selfish if you ask God for help and you resort to this kind of do-it-yourself, toughen-up Christianity where maybe your phrase playing in the back of your mind is God helps those who help themselves. Or maybe you feel afraid that God doesn't want to be bothered by all the little things that you go through on a daily basis because he's really only worried about his campaign or his kingdom. So you never feel the safety to be transparent with him because you feel like you're wasting your time and he wouldn't waste his time on you. Or maybe you feel certain that God is really just an idea 
or a theological concept. And so prayer is just an opportunity for you to show all the other people around you that you know the right things about God. You see, some of us, we can see God as a king, but we struggle to see him as a father. But others of us, we see God as a father, but we struggle to see him as a king. So you feel safe to come to God with all the little things and all the concerns and all of your desires. Maybe transparency is easy, but the second that God's will and your will are not aligned, you're kicking God to the curb. Wherever you fall on the spectrum, and all of us fall at different points along the spectrum, what Christ is teaching his disciples here is that intimacy in prayer starts with embracing who we are before God. It starts with embracing our identity. We are his children and we are his royal subjects. That that means God is our father and our king as we approach him. And the reality is this tension is not easy to embrace. Like I I realize I'm not giving you a five steps to a healthy prayer life kind of sermon, but I think that's because Jesus isn't doing that. When the disciples say, teach us to pray, he doesn't say, okay, do these five things and your prayer life will be on point. That's not what he's saying. What he says is, okay, if you want a healthy prayer life, understand that there is nothing that you bring to the table that God is impressed by. Understand that you are a needy child and that God is your king. And when we embrace that tension, this is the beginning of intimacy and prayer. So that's our position before God. But the second thing that Jesus teaches as we continue on in the scripture is he teaches us about powerlessness. When we talk about prayer, I I would be willing to bet that you haven't heard a sermon on the powerlessness of prayer. Like I said, I I grew up Baptist and Baptists love a good alliteration. So like you've probably heard the sermon, pursuing the power of prayer, right? Like when we think of prayer, we associate it with power. We associate it with might, with, with what we can change by the influence of prayer. But I'm convinced that when we're talking about prayer, prayer probably has a lot more to do with powerlessness than it does with our concept of power. I want you to look at each of the scenarios in the scripture that Jesus uses to describe how to pray. He starts by saying, give us each day our daily bread. He doesn't say, give us a year's worth of food or give us a grocery budget for the week. He says, give us today's sustenance. That assumes that we don't know where tomorrow's sustenance is coming from. That's a place of neediness, a place of helplessness. And he also says, he uses this story here where he says, assume that you are going to a friend. And what are you doing when you're going to this friend in this passage? You're going to this friend asking for something because you don't have what you need. Or further down in the passage, he talks about a child. What what child who asks his parent for an egg is given a scorpion? That's kind of a strange example, but it probably made sense in the first century. But he says, what child coming to their parent asking for an egg is given a scorpion? You see, all of these examples of how to pray that Jesus gives are examples of powerlessness. They aren't scenarios of a warrior coming to God with something to offer. They involve need. They involve weakness. They involve asking. And in my own life, I know that my prayer life suffers the most when I feel like I have everything I need. Let me say that again. My prayer life suffers the most 
when I feel like I've collected everything that I need. When finances are good, when I'm happy with my job, when my relationship with my wife is great, when everything is going the way I want it to go and I feel like I'm in control, I feel like I don't need God. It's in the moments of of hunger, of emptiness, of want, that God begins to plant seeds or, or even till the soil of a healthy prayer life. And here's the thing. The beauty of being powerless in our prayer life especially is that it disarms our illusion of control. When we feel helpless, there is nothing that we bring to the table to offer God and say, look what I have. But if we're honest, as Texans, we don't like this. We want to pray when things feel good. We want to pray and thank God for all the things that we've really done for, we think we've done for ourselves. We want to pray and we want to thank God that our lives are so put together, but we don't really want to feel needy because feeling needy means that we can't provide for ourselves. We can't manhandle. We can't manipulate God in our prayers. You see, God is not like the pagan gods of the the Romans and the Greeks that were on the hilltops that you would go to when you needed different things. Like you would go to the God of agriculture and try to bribe and pay him off so that your crops would do well. That's not the God that we worship. We don't go to God and manipulate and manhandle him into giving us what we want or to making us feel like we are strong. We go to God as needy children who hunger for more of him. And when we come to God void and needy and desperate with nothing to offer, this place of emptiness is exactly where God meets our deepest needs. At the school where, where I teach, I teach uh, Bible to freshmen. And one of the first things that I, that I say to them when I'm talking about prayer and I'm talking about being needy is I say, okay, when does food taste the best? And, and all of them get it. It's when you're hungry. So when we are hungry for God, that deep sense of satisfaction is what God provides. And if you think of last week's passage, as David said, um, th- this is kind of the third of three scenes that Jesus is telling to his disciples. But if you think of last week's passage with Martha, what was Martha doing? She was busying herself, trying to, to prove that she was worthy, trying to bring something to the table to prove to Jesus that she was enough, that she was worthy. And what did Jesus say to her? He said, Martha, look at Mary who is in a position of being low, who is humble, who is needy, who is just open to receive from me. She has chosen the better portion. If we want to understand what Jesus is teaching his disciples and teaching us about prayer, it begins by embracing powerlessness, by embracing need, by embracing our weakness, and refusing to take control of our own lives or try to offer something impressive to God. One of my favorite authors, I feel like I quote him every time I, I talk, but Eugene Peterson in his, his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he says this, he says, prayer is refusing to act before God does. Prayer is refusing to act before God does. And, and when I'm rereading that book um, lately, and when I was reading it, I came across that quote, and the first thing that came to mind was uh, this story that I remember as a middle schooler. When I was growing up, my parents took us to Six Flags 
all the time. I mean, we, I know that place forward and backward, right? We went to Six Flags all the time. And I feel bad because my parents wasted money because they just took us to Six Flags for me to ride the same ride over and over and over and over again. To this day, as an adult, I still go to Six Flags and ride the same ride over and over and over again. It's the Batman. It's the best ride there. Don't argue with me, okay? So we would go, and we were waiting in line to ride the Batman. And I remember being with my parents. It was hot because it's Texas, and we're standing in line, and we're sweating, and the line's so long. And I don't care because I'm like, I'm getting to the top, and I'm riding this ride for the 17th time today. And we're standing in line, and there's this young toddler with his parents. And you can tell the kid is dehydrated and he's frustrated and he doesn't know what's wrong because he can't understand that he probably just needs water or something, but he's, he's frustrated and, and they're going along and, and the line is trying to move and people are getting annoyed because the kid is moving slow and the parents are getting annoyed because the kid is moving slow and the kid doesn't understand what's going on, but he's frustrated and he knows that he needs something. So what does he do? You could probably see it in your mind. He plops down and he says, I'm not moving. He says, I'm not moving until I understand what I need. He plops down and he stops right there. And when I heard this Eugene Peterson quote, I thought, that's kind of what he's talking about. When we're in a place of need, in a place of desperation, when we we don't know what we need, but we know that we need something, rather than trying to run in 70 different directions, trying to provide our own sense of control and safety, God is telling us to stop and to seek him. If you think about it, that kid didn't run to the first water fountain. He didn't turn around and ask us, hey, can you give me some wisdom to help me understand what's wrong with me? I mean, he was three, so he wouldn't have talked that way anyway. But he didn't run to all these different things looking for help. He just stopped. And he knew that his parents would provide what he needed. This is what it means to be powerless when we come before God in prayer. And in all of this, The main point that I want to make here is this today. The overarching theme of what Jesus is teaching us is that prayer is not about what we do. I know that prayer requires discipline and it requires action. But when we understand this passage in relationship to last week's passage especially, what Jesus is teaching the disciples is that prayer cannot be packaged into a how-to checklist. He doesn't say, stand this way, do this thing in this way at this time, what he does is he teaches us that we are children coming before God, needy and in want of what he wants for us. We're not chasing God down. We're not trying to get his attention or or wake him up as if he's asleep. We're not rousing God by this particular combination of words. Prayer is not about striving or straining. It requires that at different times but prayer is about attunement. Rather than bending God's ear to us, what we're doing is we're opening our eyes and our ears to what he is already doing. That's very different, right? That's very different. We're we're not shouting to get God to listen to us, but we're slowing ourselves so that we can hear and see what he is already doing. Prayer in the ordinariness of life is just a dialogue with God. It's our response to the work that he is doing in every moment of every day. It's being thankful, it's grieving, it's celebrating, it's asking. Sometimes it's just being silent. It's okay to give God the silent treatment as long as your ears are open. 
It's waking, it's sleeping, it's drinking, it's eating, it's, it's breathing. Prayer is the in and out of breathing. And this is what Paul means when he says pray without ceasing. He doesn't mean you better pray every minute of every day. When I was a kid, that's what I thought it meant. I thought, this is impossible, but I guess I'm going to try really, really hard to prove to God that I'm praying without ceasing. But what Paul is saying is that prayer is the in and out of everyday life and being in an eternal dialogue with God. And so to close this morning, the most important thing that prayer is, is that it's motivated by love. Not a generic sense of love, but love for God and love for neighbor. As David mentioned, this this little three-part set of passages that we've read, we, we have Jesus laying out what it looks like to love our neighbor in the passage of the Good Samaritan. We have Jesus laying out what it looks like to love God in the passage with Mary and Martha. And so in all of this, when we understand prayer, we can't separate prayer from love. You can say all the right things. You can be theologically bulletproof in your prayer. But if you don't have love, your prayer is bankrupt. It's bankrupt. If you think about the Old Testament and you think about all of the different moments where there was powerful prayer, there are a lot of them, but just to name a few. Abraham pleading with God to spare the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's motivated by love. That's motivated by surely, God, there is is someone that, that you can spare. That's Abraham pleading with God, motivated by love. One passage that stood out to me is Hagar. When Hagar is cast out of the presence of Abraham and Sarah and she has her son and she's in the wilderness and she's sitting by a tree because she has no food and no water and and she's, she's stricken with love for her son. She's so stricken with love for her son that she can't even look upon him because she knows he's about to die. And so she separates herself from him and she's weeping out to God because of love and desperation, and an angel of the Lord appears and provides. Or Moses, when Moses goes on top of the mountain and he's praying, right? He's praying for this long period of time, and he's, he's so enraptured in love with God on this mountaintop that he comes down, and what happens? It says that his face has changed. He looks different. Jacob, remember how Jacob and Esau had that whole falling out thing? Well, when Jacob finds out that Esau is going to be near him, And Jacob sends messengers to Esau to say, hey, tell my brother that I just, I love him and I just want to make amends. I want things to be okay. And the guy comes back and he's like, "Um, so Esau's got an army and he's headed your way. And what does Jacob do? He prays. He prays to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord and he says, God, please make a way for my brother and I to be reconciled. And then finally, when we think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, When I grew up and I heard the story of Jesus in the garden, I thought, man, what a prayer warrior. That dude is just duking it out. Like he knows how to pray. He's praying so hard that he's sweating blood. Maybe, but I think when we we consider the passion of Christ, what is causing Jesus to sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane is this, this, obviously this grief, because he knows what he's about to endure is going to be difficult, but also He's praying for the world. He's praying for his disciples. He is is so in love with us and so in love with God that he's praying God's will and he's so enraptured with passion and with love that the only thing he can do is be overcome with it. 
I promise you, when you read the way Jesus teaches us to pray, to forgive us of our sins, to forgive others, when we think of the, the, the full um, section of the Lord's Prayer, when, when Jesus says to pray for God's kingdom come, like all of these different things, you can't pray to resist temptation if you don't love the Lord's way of life. You, you, can't, you can't pray for God's kingdom to come if you don't love God's kingdom. And I promise you, you can't pray for forgiveness over your enemies if you don't have love for God or your enemies. Love has to be the beginning, the middle, and the end of an intimate and healthy prayer life. And here's the beauty, and here's how I want to end. In all of this, we will fail. Every one of us in this room will fail. We will pray with bad motivation. We will pray for the wrong reasons. We won't pray. We'll pray too much, if that's even possible. We'll get this wrong. But we are not being given a task by Jesus in this passage that we're going to be graded on. We're not not being told by Jesus, this is how you pray, and if you get it wrong, you better watch out. But no, we're being invited into this eternal conversation with our Father and our King. There's no pressure to pray it right. There is only the invitation and the strong hand of the Father guiding us along the way. And here's what's beautiful. In the book of Romans, it says that when we feel so overcome with grief or we feel so helpless and we don't know how to pray, I like to imagine that's being overcome with getting it wrong and not knowing what to do and just being helpless before the Lord. It says that the Spirit prays on our behalf with groans that are too deep for words. So even when we get it wrong, the Spirit is our helper. I want to close today with a quote from the the Wesleyan theologian um, named Adam Clark, and here's what he says. He says, Prayer requires more of the heart than just the tongue. Requires more of the heart than just the tongue. And I think that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. So for all of us, as we read this passage, Don't be afraid to be needy. Don't be afraid to be powerless. And please don't be afraid to come to your father and your king with any need that you have. Because he, as we prayed this morning, is always more ready to hear than we are to pray. Let's pray together. Jesus, we we love you and we do come to you as children who are needy. We come with empty hands. God, we come with nothing but ourselves. And we pray that that would be enough. I pray, Spirit, this morning that you would, um, you would rouse those who have struggled to pray, to pray more. I pray that you would um, motivate our hearts to pray from a place of love. But more than anything, Father, I pray that we, we would just come to you wherever we are, however we are, however broken we feel. And I pray that we would feel the loving embrace of a father who is always ready to receive us. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have given us. We pray this in your name.